Greetings and welcome to episode 18 of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. I'm your host, Gil Maza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it, with a few shenanigans along the way. We are in for another epic podcast episode with retired Associate Chief Gary Labby as he relates to us his first-hand account of the very first Bortac class. Yes, the story of Bortac 1 exclusively at Old Patrol HQ. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first, honor always. Good morning, sir, and welcome back to the Old Patrol HQ podcast. Good morning, Gil. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's good to talk to you too, sir. Um, the last time we talked, we had a very uh, enlightening and uh, revealing interview discussing the making of Borderline, that movie with Charles Bronson, and that podcast has... Uh, gotten so many listens and it's been so well received and the pictures you sent me also um, I posted them recently I know you saw them and uh, boy everybody got a got a kick out of those yeah I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad that you know I was able to uh, document that part of the uh, the borderline history uh, and ironically for those who listen to the podcast uh, Yes. Which was, uh, was a little eerie for me when I, I turned on the news and after having done the podcast the day before and uh, here they have uh, the well-known character actor Wilfred Brimley died today and ironically he died the same age as Ab Taylor. Uh, Wilfred was 88 and Ab was 88 when he died. No so, kidding. That's uh, amazing. Now, um, we're going a whole different direction, this podcast, uh, aren't we? Yes, sir, and I um, I know that we talked about that uh, you wanted to start out by um, offering a special tribute. Thank you. 
witness to him and the uh, sacrifice he made. And if I may, I'd, I'd like to read the brief official report of his uh, tragic uh, airplane accident that took his life. Um, uh, it goes uh, something. It goes like this: uh, On July 14, 1989, Pilot Roberson departed the Marine Corps Air Station, Yuma, Arizona, at 5:50 a.m. in service aircraft. Shortly after takeoff, he responded to a request for assistance in the Yuma freight yards, where Border Patrol units were conducting freight train check operations. Uh, at 6.10 a.m., Pilot Roberson departed the freight yard area, proceeded south to uh, County 23 and 3rd Avenue to assist ground units in working uh, a trail of three aliens. Upon arrival, Pilot Roberson commenced sign cutting now this was typical of Dave, that uh, he would be sign cutting from a twin engine Cessna. <laughs> uh, wow. And uh, like I said, Dave was an easygoing guy, and he'd give you the shirt off his back. I mean, really nice uh, guy, dedicated agent. Yeah. So uh, while he's sign cutting, while maintaining radio contact, with senior patrol agent David Ramirez and patrol agent Rosendo Gillen, who were working in the immediate area on the trail. At 6.24 a.m., pilot Roberson stalled the aircraft and crashed. The aircraft was totally destroyed by the impact and post-crash fire. Pilot uh, Roberson died instantly. Mm. Uh, very tragic, like I said, for uh, such a, a really, uh, really nice guy, like I said. Uh, and Dave, uh, uh, just adding a little, a little bit of the humor to, to Dave's history, when Dave showed up at the Camp Beauregard, Louisiana, he had brought his golf clubs with him, and uh, everybody got a kick out of that because we didn't know what to expect there, and Dave figured this is going to be a typical Border Patrol detail yeah. where I'll be able to, to go out on the golf course and play some golf on our off date. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, they, they honed in on Dave from day one. Oh, man, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, he was like <laughs> he became a target right off the bat of the marshals. Uh, <laughs> anyway, like I said, I just wanted to uh, give this uh, this brief uh, dedication to Dave and in his memory. Well, thank you for honoring us with that. Sure. Uh, and now getting uh, getting to Vortac uh, initially. Vortac, uh, which was an all-volunteer unit, formed in 1984, and basically the reason they formed Vortac is uh, in response to an increased threat of riots at several of the services processing centers, mainly Miami, Chrome North, uh, Oakdale, 
tricky for the, uh, the, the offices and the sectors and uh, uh, assisted the local local police. Uh, mm-hmm. Foreign deployments, uh, very numerous. I'm sure people will be surprised to find out that Ortag was involved in the uh, following countries, Bolivia, Guatemala, mm-hmm. El Salvador, Uruguay, Uruguay, Brazil, Panama, Belize, Haiti, Tunisia, Latvia, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, South Africa, United Arab Emirates, Oman, the Republic of Yemen, Morocco, Lithuania, Estonia, and the Republic of Georgia. And I'm sure agents, Vortec agents that participated in those deployments can speak better uh, to to a lot of these than I can Mm -hmm. because I wasn't involved in a lot of them. But, you know, any Vortec agents that want to contact you and and elaborate on that, uh, I'm sure uh, they can uh, do a better job than, than I can. That's amazing, anyway, though. That, I just wanted to give that brief history, like I said, to, to show the extent of, of Vortac operations, which uh, I'm sure not too many people, unless they're actually involved with Vortac, were aware of the, uh, uh, some of the, uh, the missions and the, uh, the complexities and the, the, the many, many countries that Vortac, that uh, and most recently, uh, even Iraq, uh, where Vortac was, was deployed to Iraq to assist our troops. Uh, I have a, a photo here of a Vortac agent paramedic uh, treating uh, shrapnel wounds from an exploded IED in Iraq, treating uh, one of the soldiers. So like I said, their, uh, their operations are highly Yeah, I know when I first came in, when I first came in, you heard whispers of, whispers of that kind of stuff. I mean, there was just a rumor and innuendo in regards to the fact that we had gone to, participated in other countries with, in operations, we meaning the uh, Bortakers. And um, it wasn't until the advent of social media where you kind of get a hint based on a few pictures and, and, and things people said on Old Patrol or on Legacy where they post pictures of uh, guys in, you know, in of camis and, and uh, you know, in uh, camouflage gear talking, just hinting at, you know, hinting at operations in all, all over the world. Yeah, and, and like I said, a lot of it was kept uh, purposely hushed up, uh, I think, for uh, the protection of the agents. Uh, and then... Uh, confidentiality agreements that were signed because a lot of these international uh, assistants uh, could have created havoc in the press, you know, where uh, claiming that, you know, we were assisting uh, governments that weren't friendly to the U.S. or, like I said, the press tends to put a negative spin on a lot of things, especially 
early nowadays. Yes. And uh, I think it was mainly uh, a uh, upper echelon decision, uh, headquarters and uh, DOJ and the Attorney General's office to, and, and even the White House to, to keep a lot of these things uh, as secretive as, as possible. Uh, just recently, when I'm watching the uh, riots in uh, Seattle and Milwaukee, uh, I can see that some of the agents there, uh, you know, I noticed the Border Patrol patch on one, and I knew it would board that. I knew they they had been sent there to, uh, to, quell, to quell the riots. And, uh, so, uh, like I said, to this day, uh, it, it continues. Getting back to Port Act One. All right. Uh, initially, uh, when I put in for Port Act, I was on the uh, Canadian border. When I got to the Canadian border, I quickly found the drastic change in uh, activity uh, coming from Southern California to Northern Maine. Uh, I mean, in at the time, San Diego, Chula Vista sector, uh, during any given eight-hour shift, we would apprehend 1,500 uh, aliens. Uh, you know, during the late 70s, early 80s, we were right out straight. So I transferred to my home area of northern Maine, where uh, we were actually given a quota of apprehending five aliens a month. So you can see from uh, from fifteen hundred to five aliens was uh, was a drastic change. Yeah, I'll cover that more when I do a podcast on the on the Canadian border. But okay. anyway, my driving force behind joining Bortac was uh, mainly because uh, of the boredom, and I I saw it as a great opportunity to get some training, advanced training which I knew would be uh, coming down the pike with, uh, with Bortac. Uh, so I, I applied. Uh, initially, we had to take, we had physical requirements that we had to perform at sector, which would be verified by uh, a sector agent, uh, mm -hmm. uh, mainly uh, a supervisor at sector that could verify that we were qualified to uh, to uh, become part of BORTAC, and that was only part of the process. There was a background uh, check on your work and talk to your fellow agents, and uh, but uh, as far as I can remember, I I know we had to do a uh, hundred push-ups, fifty sit-ups. Um, 10 or 15 pull-ups from a dead hang, run uh, the mile under 10 minutes, and uh, there was also a swimming qualification, which they were going to put us through when we got to Bortac uh, training, mm -hmm. which I'll cover later. Uh, but anyway, uh, passed, went through all that, and... Uh, they had told us that they would retest us once we got to uh, Bortac 1 training, uh, which they did. Uh, anyway, I uh, showed up at uh, 
horse barracks, the old army training center. And you could tell that a lot of the buildings were really old. I mean, they were, uh, some of them were a little bit dilapidated. Uh, and uh, the base, I believe, was uh, being occasionally used as a National Guard training site also for the uh, Louisiana National Guard. Mm-hmm. Rain. I mean, this was spring. This was May of uh, '98. The weather 
and wait for the next busload of uh, trainees to show up. The marshals would uh, come right in our faces and start yelling at us. This was almost like, uh, I felt like I was back in boot camp. It was almost like uh, Paris Island Marine Corps type yeah. training. And I came later to find out that a lot of the marshals were former Marine Corps. <laughs> Yeah. So, like I said, they, they got in our faces, they started yelling at us, saying, what the hell are you guys doing here? You're all heading home tomorrow. <laughs> you're, you know, you're not going to make it through this here. And, and anyway, like I said, it was a great start yeah. to, to, <laughs> to the training, and uh, they kept us out there in the rain, and then finally they brought us in and and. Uh, ironically, I have all this on tape, uh, them, uh, uh, I mean, I've even got uh, one episode of the marshal yelling right in my ear, you know, with, there at night in the driving rain. The marshals made the, uh, I guess, the error of taping the first session of Bortak. Ah. Uh, and I referred to it as an error because when I got back to Maine and showed the training tape that we had gone through, nobody from the sector ever volunteered for more after <laughs> 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 <to> watching. <laughs> and I think that's probably what they wanted. <laughs> probably. They, not only were they eliminating us, they were elim eliminating any future applicants, <laughs> which is the reason, the reason for the tape. Anyway, they, uh, like I said, discontinued, and then they said, all right, they filed us into this uh, auditorium, and we thought, God, finally, you know, we get to sit down, take a break from the rain. We were all soaking wet. Poor Dave, like I mentioned earlier, Dave was standing there with, I can still see him, standing there with his golf bag oh my uh, hunched over his shoulder, which by that time was probably half full of water. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, anyway, they, they filed us into the auditorium, and they had the chief marshal uh, get on the, the stage. This was, uh, uh, like I said, they had uh, seating for, for all of us in a little stage. And the chief marshal laid into the welcome, which, uh, again, uh, I think they let, we only got the opening welcome remark. And then they blanked out the rest of it because it was it was so terrible. Yeah. Like I said, we didn't really. And nobody there felt welcome. Everybody was telling themselves, "What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> why did I why did I volunteer for this terrible dilemma that they're they're putting us through?" Yeah. Anyway, like I said, they kept us up well past midnight with their indoctrination, what they expected of us. They said, we know a lot of you guys were tested by your friends back home at Sector. Well, we're going to test you tomorrow and find out if you really passed our requirements. Hmm. So we had that to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, they finally, I think we finally, uh, finally let us hit the sack around 2 in the morning. I mean, we're all, like I said, we're all on these bunks in the, in the same room, and guys were you know, starting to say, just were expressing their, their thoughts about what they thought about the first day. And I think the marshals had the 
<laughs> they were listening to us complaining. Anyway, uh, like I said, two in the morning, we finally doze off. About four in the morning, they come into the barracks uh, banging garbage cans. They actually had these metal garbage cans to wake us up. Yeah, I, re I remember those. You know, you can imagine the shock. You know, here we are, we barely got an hour or two sleep. And uh, they're waking us up at four in the morning, telling us to get ready for formation. You know, they had a formation at five o'clock every morning, the whole time we were there. Hmm. One of the uh, other aspects of the formation is, uh, as the days went on, we would notice that there were fewer and fewer of us. We'd line up in the morning and there'd be one or two missing. And then again the next morning there'd be one or two missing. What they were doing is they were eliminating people uh, one by one that they felt that shouldn't be there for yeah. no apparent reason other than they were weeding, weedling us down. Wow. Uh, like I said, they even, uh, what the marshals would do is they would call you in in the evening and sit you at a round table where there were five or six of the marshals and they would try to convince you that you should resign, that the training should not continue oh. uh, because you weren't fit, you weren't qualified. Uh, and obviously it got to some of the guys because they weren't too happy to start with. <laughs> yeah. They said, we've already put up with all the crap we're going to put up with. Sure, I'll head home tomorrow. <laughs> And uh, then it came down to, uh, they decided they were going to pull me in and uh, the fellow uh, Bortacker, uh, John France. Now, John was a black belt in karate. The only thing that uh, was a little negative about John was he smoked. And he smoked during our training. Oh. And I think that really got to the marshals where during a break, Well, both John and I, or 
in case you're captured or kidnapped and somebody throws you into the water, then you guys will be able to survive. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't really think of any scenario where that would happen to us. But anyway, uh, now the other thing with the uh, training, they had brought in uh, cooks from the Louisiana State Prison. These were inmates that were cooking for us. No kidding. So you, so you had to be a little leery where they knew we were all law enforcement. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I could still see them there in the kitchen looking at us, you know, cooking. Wow. And the marshals would tell them to cook big meals for us. We'd go in for lunch and they'd be cooking steaks, you know. And then we had rules to abide by in the dining hall. We sat four to a table and we had to eat at attention. Uh, and we couldn't talk to one another. We couldn't even look at one another. The marshal said, I don't want to see any of you looking at each other. I don't want to see any of you talking and you're to stay at attention. So naturally our appetites sort of went downhill when, <laughs> when we were under those uh, terrible restrictions. Now they would let us, and some of the guys were, were really hungry, so you know, they, and I was never a meat eater, so I didn't care for steak anyway. Uh, but anyway, we guys would, because you only had a certain amount of time to hurry up and eat. It wasn't a relaxed atmosphere where they gave you 10 or 15 minutes to clean your plate. So uh, then, in the middle of our eating, they would say, okay, everybody get up. They take us out to the obstacle course at, just after having eaten. Oh. And the obstacle course was a special forces type. I've never seen an obstacle course like that in my life. We had huge walls that we had to climb up and rebel off of. We had to uh, go under barbed wire in the mud. Uh, I mean, it was, like I said, it was an obstacle course that, and again, if you didn't make it through the obstacle course, you're out. So you can imagine after having eaten and then take us out to that obstacle course. Oh, yeah. But we learned from, from that day on not to eat much. Yeah. I mean, I think I lost 15 or 20 pounds, uh, well, while I was there for a few weeks. I mean... Uh, I actually have a photo that if I can dig it up, I'll send it to you, where Buck uh, Brandemule at the time, the chief of the Border Patrol, uh, came to our graduation ceremony, and they took a photo of me shaking his hand, and I looked like uh, I came out of Auschwitz death camp. Wow. You know? Yeah. I just, I had lost, like, and I wasn't big to start with. I was a marathon runner. Yeah. I mean, I weighed, I, I probably weighed 130, 140 soaking wet. So, you know, I was, like I said, I was into running. So I had kept the weight off over the, the last few years, pretty mm -hmm. much. But, and, and after, even after I got home, uh, my wife would tell me, uh, you woke me up last night in the middle of the night screaming. <laughs> I would have nightmares <laughs> where, you know, I would yeah. actually uh, end up screaming in the middle of the night. That's how, how 
Amen. Now, on, on top of that, uh, we had been there over a week and hadn't been allowed, we weren't allowed to do anything, to go anywhere. It was not a typical Border Patrol detail. Uh, you were confined to where you were at. We weren't even allowed to make phone calls. And back then, there weren't any cell phones. But the base had one payphone booth. And the marshals, one day after we'd been there over a week, says, okay, you guys have uh, <clears throat> 15 minutes to run to the phone booth, call home, and then get your butt back here. Well, you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, being a runner, I was the first one to make it to the phone booth, dial my home phone number for collect call. My wife picked up. I said, listen, I've only got about 30 seconds. <laughs> no, I just wanted to let you know that I I made it all right and I may be home tomorrow. <laughs> just, <laughs> so anyway, and I could just uh, picture my wife going, yeah, right, you're on a detail there and you, you know, you're, <laughs> you're living it up. Uh, 
son, Randy Weaver's son, shot him. They even shot the dog. Uh, and his friend, uh, Randy Weaver's friend, made it back to the cabin to report what had happened. So things got real heated from that point on. White supremacists from all over the country started showing up and protesting that they were going after Randy Weaver. Anyway, the FBI uh, special response team showed up. They had a sniper on the team. And the sniper honed in on the front door, ended up tragically shooting and killing Randy Weaver's wife while she was holding the baby in her arms. Oh. Uh, shot and killed her. Now that was obviously, a, you know, a, a dumb, tragic call by by the FBI. I have no idea what you know. And there were subsequent investigations into it. Mm-hmm. Things were obviously covered up. But anyway, after his wife was shot and killed, he surrendered. So that, that ended. But that's where, uh, like I said, where Jim, Jim Deegan was, uh, was killed. And then Jim had taught us, uh, rappelling. That was his part of the, uh, the training. And I think some of the photos I sent you, there's a photo of John France coming down the wall. And normally, rappelling, you rappel backwards. Yeah. Well, Jim taught us the Australian rappel. Right, Aussie rappel. rappel forward, <laughs> which was something very uh, new to us. And everybody, and we were up high on the lip of that wall, I mean, a couple of hundred feet. And you're standing there, and you're going to have to rappel face first. So naturally, that scared the hell out of all of us. We eventually uh, got the knack of it, and uh, so, like I said, he was—he uh, was one of the, the better guys that had a little more patience with us and taught us, uh, uh, taught us, you know, a, a little more of the technique. Because that's one thing I found during that uh, first board tax session. We didn't really learn much because it wasn't their goal to have us absorb anything. Uh-huh. They just uh, they just wanted to break us down. Even the firing range, they took us out to the firing range at 5 in the morning. We'd be there until midnight all day. They'd bring out sandwiches, you know, that the inmates had made for us. Right. We were leery of to start with. And uh, we'd be shooting all day, and it was nothing like the Border Patrol qualification. They had made up scenarios and, you know, a scenario where you stand a foot from the target, raw, and fire. I can still see, uh, I think uh, it was Jim Grasky drawing and putting his uh, 357 right through the target, (laughs) (laughs) through the the paper target, because we were standing so close to the damn target. Yeah. But anyway, like I said, that ended up, Pete Moran, at the time that I mentioned earlier, Pete had problems with his feet. And during that marathon section of the firing range, his feet swelled up to where he couldn't get his, even get his boots on. So Pete had to resign, you know, uh, ironically, because of, of that whole, uh, whole day of, whole day and night of being at the firing range. Another thing they did is night 
live firing, which we had never experienced. I mean, uh, they had actually had marshals out there firing rounds. We were laying down in the dirt. They wanted us to see what it felt like to come under fire. Well, that was another scary incident, you know, when you're yeah. real close to somebody firing live rounds. Yes. Uh, anyway, like I said, eventually uh, we'd see one guy missing in the morning. They weeded out a few of us, but they didn't weed out as many as they wanted to. Uh, and then finally, the graduation day came, and uh, they uh, and and one of the employees they used when they trained us, they would bring us into these closed barracks with no air conditioning, and all the windows were closed, and they would lecture us where, to the point where everybody was dozing off. Oh. And uh, one of the scenarios was at the time, Bortak, when we initiated, decided to go with the Ruger Mini 14 uh, for one reason or another. It was easy to carry, easy to tear down. So uh, the marshals would give us one uh, demonstration of tearing it down and putting it back together and then expect us to go up there and do the same. Now, I had never taken apart a rifle, torn it down, put it back together, like many of us there. Well, yeah, we, uh, it took us a while to get the hang of it. Mm -hmm. But that was the ploy that they were using. They weren't really uh, teaching us. They were just shoving things at us to, to, to continue the, uh, the aggravation. Yeah. And it continued right up until graduation day when we finally we said, thank God. We're almost done. So graduation day, uh, actually the day before graduation day, they haul us all into the barracks. Again, no air conditioning, no air circulation. And they have the chief marshal give us a long droning talk on God knows what. Uh, and some of us were starting to fall asleep. And I've actually got that on video here. <laughs> a couple of the board that dozing off and then the marshals start yelling they start yelling at it they said here we are we're we're trying to give you guys some training and instruction and you're dozing off you're all going for a five mile uh, hike with your backpacks oh. they, they they heard us all outside but before the run they have us do a hundred push-ups in the gravel and I can still see some of the guys actually cut their hands on the gravel, you know, uh, from doing push-ups, 100 push-ups. And, uh, and then everybody gets up and we're going, oh, my God, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> we hadn't slept for weeks. We hadn't really eaten. And now we're going on a five-mile forest run. And then, lo and behold, the marshals uh, all turn around and start chuckling. They said, okay, we were only joking. Welcome uh. to Bortak. You all made it. <laughs> Man, that so, must have been something. So everybody's going, yeah, wait till we meet up with you guys someday. You know, and they were coming to us to shake our hands. Nobody shook their hands. <laughs> we were, everybody was so teed off from what they, they had pulled the whole time we were there up until the last possible minute. Oh. Uh, anyway, like I said, 
him. So there was a lot of support at that time from from headquarters. Shortly after that, we all gladly headed home. Uh, I returned to Holden Sector, and like I mentioned, showed the video and pretty much discouraged everybody in the sector from from, from joining board that. You know, they said, you're going to be crazy, Lavi, to have, you know, endured that, gone through that. This concludes part one of episode 18, our interview with retired Associate Chief Gary Labby and the history of BORTAC 1. But this is just half the story. Now go listen to part two. Honor first, honor always.